Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 138 of the Apolog Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. I'm in my basement. Hey, say hi, Everett. Hey, what's up, Dad? <laughs> That's his hip-hop talk. Oh, now it's his giver talk. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash apologue. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Everett, do you know what an MP3 player is? No, it's Jewel. There you go. To download your free audiobook today, 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash apologue. Hey, Amazon shoppers. Do you like to shop on Amazon, Everett? good i don't believe you if you are interested in supporting the show with my affiliate program you can simply go to www.apolog.ca slash amazon and if you're from the united states go to apolog.ca slash us amazon every time you shop on amazon don't forget to bookmark those links you will be supporting the show and i uh, get shopping on amazon if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, you can go to the homepage, which is apolog.ca, and click on those links on the right side. Locate your country, whether you're from Canada, United States, or the UK. Hey, that's great. If you're interested in uh, supporting the show on a monthly basis, you can go to patreon.com slash Pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees. You can cancel at any time, and I'd like to thank the patrons I have over there already. Hey, if you're in a band, you want to uh, get some online mixing done, why don't you go to InsightRecorders.com, check out the rates, check out what the studio is all about. The the Insight Recording Studio website is also a place where you could open up your own store. Right now, there's a pilot project I'm starting, which is InsightRecorders.com slash 3D prints. It's a 3D printing shop. Check out what's there. It's the number three letter D prints. There's all tons of services there. To get in touch, go to insightrecorders.com slash contact for more rates and, and all that stuff. If you want to buy a t-shirt, you can go to apolog.ca slash shop and buy my band's Foursquare Discography for $20. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review the show. Give it five stars, please. Like the show on facebook.com slash and follow me on Twitter at SimonHead666. And that's all the bits. Today on the show, I have a very old friend and a very old working companion. His name is Graham Boyce. This is a two-parter. Graham has been in the music industry since the late 80s. He's been, uh, he's a writer. He's also... Um, he owned the record label Raw Energy Records, which put out tons and tons and tons and tons of bands. I think I recorded about four or five of the bands on that label. Hey, everybody. Here he is, my friend Graham Boyce on the Apolog Podcast. It's I yeah we're trying to remember just off how long it's been Graham Boyce and I think it's been since the early two thousands I want to say so when I got back from China perhaps after the transition situation 
Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd hired a whole whack of people. I went from uh, doing the Raw Energy radio show in the mid-90s, being hired by uh, the Iceberg or John Walter specifically. Uh, and then after I set up that company, I got hired by his lawyer uh, to go work for another company called Magic Corp, and we set up Tribe Nation. And that sent me over to China, and I came back around 2001. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and since that time, I've been uh, around the world uh, doing other things. So it's interesting, just from on that perspective, I've done try to save the world uh, through music, and now try to save the world through solar energy. Oh, wow. Okay, so we should talk a bit, uh, yeah, totally about that stuff, because you started off... Where did when and where did you start off in music? Because you've been like you've been around as long as I remember. Like raw energy and your name are synonymous with Toronto uh, punk rock bands like Random Killing, King Apparatus. Like all these bands were sort of attached to you somehow. I was working at a magazine called RPM Weekly in the mid to late '80s for four years after I came back from Bermuda, and I worked with uh, Walt Grealis and Stan Cleese, who created the Juno Awards, and. I wanted to do, after talking to all these guys and the record companies and the publicists and, and the radio guys and the guys at retail, not to mention the acts themselves, I realized realistically uh, there needed to be a change. And so I wanted to put out uh, the kinds of music, if you will, by kids, for kids. Um, and, that's, and what happened was, was a fellow by the name of Chris Murray uh, came to our office knocking on the door selling sunglasses. And our bosses at the time said, yeah, why don't you come in? Oh, by the way, do you want a job? And uh, he, he was the lead singer of King Apparatus. And uh, and he begged me to come see his shows. I said, oh, no, no, I'm going to see Billy Joel tonight. Oh, I'm going to see Van Halen tonight. Oh, I'm going to see ZZ Pop tonight. And uh, he goes, but we're a ska band. And I pardon? So the, the two musics that I liked growing up uh, were punk and ska. And Toronto never really got recognized. Well, it kind of got recognized, but it didn't really get recognized as in the New York or the LA or the London kind of uh, same scenario, but it had an equally good scene all the way back to the 60s, if you will, with the Ugly Ducklings and uh, bands of that ilk. Uh, so in the in the 70s, as a kid, you know, as a teenager, I went to Toronto from Whitby uh, to go downtown, and we saw the Demix and the Dios and Teenage Head, the Bad Wives, bands like that, all the time. Not to mention uh, the really good English bands uh, that came through the specials, the English beat bands of that nature. So I was into punk and ska. And so in the mid to late 80s, when absolutely no one was doing much of that, and Chris Murray walks into the office, begs me to come see a show, and we drive out to London because they were all going to Western, or had just graduated. Uh, we went to see their show, and uh, let me tell you, it just brought back the memories of when I was a kid. I said, yeah, okay, let's do something. We never actually did sign a contract with Gang and King Apparatus, but when we recorded uh, their first album, providing reinforced vocal emphasis was Drew from Random Killing. So they were the next band uh, after King Apparatus that we signed, and we went on from there to sign. And what I, what I tried to do with the label, uh, other than put theory into practice, the theory four years of the magazine, uh, to take well and take not just necessarily a sound, run with the sound, but really go uh, beyond the borders, if you will, of a sound and try to challenge each new band, if you will, that you signed uh, and see if they could learn something from that next band that came along. And it kind of worked. It, uh, you know, I mean, if you think about it, those early days, uh, we, we, we bounced around from 
King Apparatus, Random Killing, King Cop, Steely, Dinner is Ruined, uh, Space City USA, uh, All Good Children, uh, Leanne Hayes, like some really weird, good bands uh, with a lot of really good music. A lot of, and the reason I like punk and ska is the message, the message in the music. Uh, I thought we really were making impact and it, we really hit our stride in the mid-90s when the whole quote-unquote skateboard scene uh, really started to unfold with the success of Green Day and The Offspring in particular. But uh, and not to say that we were following on their coattails, but we certainly made an impact, I thought, in that scene. Absolutely. Yeah, there was definitely a, a time and a place perfect for Ronergy and, and yourself based on the fact that all the bands that were sort of already coming up and along, it was all in sync with what was already happening. So it would only make sense that it would just turn into something good. I mean, and the other thing you had foresight to is to look at younger bands who are making more of an impact, like Maryland's Vitamins, even Trigger Happy to an extent was a young band at that point. And all these other bands like Trunk and, and I can't even name half of the bands that you put out, but you put out these bands like religiously and stood behind them. And it was always sort of like that was a neat you know, a neat scene. So, you know, you, you could be responsible for that. One of, one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't realize about the label is that it turned quickly from, let's say, a management company uh, to a management company that understood a full grant of rights and what you were expected to expose, and not just the music, but uh, uh, the graphics that went along with an album required someone to produce those graphics. Uh, the, uh, much music at the time uh, was having its influence and its impact, so we needed video product. Uh, there seemed to be an awful lot of good promoters and good agents and good venues uh, that were willing to take chances on new young bands. And when you mentioned the Maryland Vitamins and the Trunks and bands like that, they had a great head start, if you will, given to them by the influence of guys like Trigger Happy and even before that, was it Kingpin? You know, really good strong bands uh, that had a message and that had an impact and were very powerful uh, with their stage presence and their, and what they were saying, what, the, what they were trying to get the young people to understand. It wasn't just about the love songs that were on the radio at the time. Uh, it was about you know making yourself known and, and being known, not just because you had an ego, but because you had something to say and something of relevance. And when I was at the magazine, that was the one thing that was missing from the music, I thought, was the relevancy that that, that, that knitted quality you need between the musician and what he has to say and the audience and what they need to hear mm -hmm. uh, and they need they need direction they need leadership and, and bands with a good strong presence uh on stage provide that leadership and you feel that energy man some of those shows uh, uh trunk of maryland's vitamins i think opened up for, for uh rancid and uh that was one great show i remember uh it was a five knuckle chuckle who opened up for uh, slayer and so there was, a, there was a bunch of really good shows that we had the opportunity. We opened up for a lot of really good bands. Uh, and we had, we, you know, we stood on our own two feet. I mean, we weren't riding the coattails of other bands. But, uh, yeah, I'll give, I'll give credit where credit's due. And uh, guys like Al Nolan and, and, and what they had, <laughs> wait, is that the Pickering sound? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, what they had done uh, for years and what they'd stuck to and stuck to their guns and, and stuck to what they believed in. That was really important, and then and it, and it gave the young bands that we were signing the confidence to go out there and do their own thing and do it right, and and do it with gusto and bravado, not just uh, standing staring at your shoes. Remember, they're called shoegazer oh, bands. Yeah. Definitely, right. yeah, 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 yeah. 
Well, I remember that. I remember Trigger Happy because obviously I played in that band in the early days. I, I went on the road with three bands uh, King Apparatus, Random Killing, and Trigger Happy. And, uh, you know, the, the, I had a lot of fun with Trigger Happy. Like, I really did. We came off that tour and they went straight into the studio. Um, you know, so they were a hardworking band and they really knew their stuff. Uh, and, and Mark was a, just an absolutely one of the best guitarists ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then believe me, I've had the pleasure of working with an awful lot. Uh, but, you know, like I was saying, the, the label eventually, after Trigger Happy, if you remember, we started signing an awful lot of uh, pure punk, like pure skate punk, I think it was called, you know, and, and, and had a lot of fun in that genre and really ruled the roost, I thought. And we were really going to try and make a scene out of it. I mean, and we tried our best. I mean, we, we honestly went from the, the A&M scenario uh, to the global distribution scenario we had with Black Mark out of Germany. We were distributed in 22 territories. Not one of our albums that we ever put out ever had the CanCon logo on it. We weren't waving the, the beaver tail, if you will. Uh, we weren't looking for radio to proudly proclaim us as a Canadian label. We were just promoting great music by great young artists, putting them on the road, making sure that they had the wherewithal when they were on the road, like putting them in contact with the right promoters. There's a a great little magazine of book your own fucking life yeah uh you know and and we gave that that chris black was you know religious and almost telling these guys this is what you have to do mm. you know no one's going to do it for you in those early days and only the strong survive uh so we started producing videos uh when we bought that analog uh equipment but nonetheless producing our own videos uh from there producing documentaries uh, getting much music interested in, in what we were doing, and they were they were really big supporters. I mean, much music. I remember we had that Wild, Wild Water Kingdom show, uh, the the Ronji Beach picnics. So we weren't just uh, opening up for bands as they came to town. We were promoting our own shows, and they were quite big shows and quite widely promoted shows on both radio and t- TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so from there. Uh, in the late 90s, if you remember, uh, Raw Dana came along, John Free came along. These were these were great young minds. I mean, we'd gone through so many great people in the office. I don't mean gone through, but uh, a lot of great people came through the office, not just on the music side, but on the management side, uh, who helped make uh, the bands as famous as they got. Uh, you know, some some bands, you know, uh, recorded an album and then broke up. Yeah, you know, thinking that you know that was it. Uh, they had their baby, and uh, they've done a job. You know, so you had to deal with that. And uh, I think realistically, you know, as I moved through, like I was, uh, yeah, yeah, ninety-two. So I would have been forty by the time uh, I said to the young people, "Okay, it's, it's up to you guys to keep this going." And uh, you know, uh, out of hand, great band, great thrash, like. Uh, you, know, you move around the punk spectrum. It wasn't. It's, it's unfair of me to say they were just punk bands. I mean, punk to me was an attitude, not a musical style. And uh, Trigger Happy wore it well. Uh, but a lot of the bands did. Uh, in uh, take a look at uh, Robin Hoods. A bit older, a bit more mature, but great, great songwriters. And uh, you know, uh, misunderstood from a quote-unquote punk perspective. Uh, you know, not cool and uh, way more punk, if you You know, so that's that's how I kind of migrated from uh, what they might have called an alternative label 
to a brand of entertainment. And we were really pumping out a lot more than just music. We even had a, a, a magazine mm-hmm. um, yeah, that we put out simply called Raw Energy. You were older. Yeah, that's right. You were you were old. You you still are older. Um, but were you? Did you come out of like university or something with this sort of like idea of putting people together? Is this always been? Because that's your that's your game. You put good people together and they work together, and you you understand the people around you and what they can do. Is that something that you have always had? Like, is this something, or is this something that you sort of learned in life? Uh, it's a good question because. I was very fatalistic, uh, migrating from uh, a director of student activities in high school and meeting a lot of the bands who played at our high school, or booking them and meeting them and talking to them, and uh, and getting to know what the from an early age. You know, I was 17 or 18 years old doing that, and and paying these guys like a thousand bucks and thinking, wow, this is really lucrative. Hmm. Uh, but not really. I mean, it wasn't really lucrative for them. I mean, a lot of bands drove a lot of miles to get to to make that thousand. Anyway. Um, I then went on to university, uh, got a university degree, graduated in 81. Uh, after that, I ended up working in the hotels because I wanted to travel around the world and I didn't want to stay fixed in, in this case, Whitby. Um, you know, so I did. I took a job at the Holiday Inn out by the airport and a few months later got uh, headhunted uh, out of the blue one morning and ended up in an office downtown the next day, got interviewed and within a few months was working in Bermuda. I worked in Bermuda for a couple of years. I met an awful lot of very famous people who were very kind uh, with the advice that they had for me. One of, the, one of the kindest, smartest men I ever met was Michael Landon, uh, who produced Little House in the Prairie. But I knew him from Bonanza. And I called him across the lobby, hey, little Joe. And he told me. Uh, but I didn't know that he was dying of cancer at the time. And he certainly didn't tell me. And uh, he was giving me all this great advice at 3 in the morning. Uh, you know, as a stone cold sober standing behind this uh, front desk down in Bermuda. And I was working in Bermuda for two years. So I came back in 85. And uh, literally, I was a courier when I came back from Bermuda because I didn't want to go back into hotels. I'd had enough. And uh, working as a courier. And I literally was dropping off a package at AM Records. As I'm walking down the hallway, walking past all these Juno Awards, I said to myself, Self, I know the guys who started these Juno Awards. I, I know them, Stan Walt. They used to be uh, uh, my customers at the, the, the restaurant at the Holiday Inn. And I walked up to the receptionist. I said, hey, do you know Walt and Stan? I mean, I mean, this would have been six years, maybe eight years later type thing, like a long time after I'd seen them. And she goes, no, I never heard of Walt and Stan. The guy behind her says, oh, yeah, they, they still run the magazine. Uh, why don't you go say hi? So the next morning, I'm still at her. The next morning, I'm going to see Walt and Stan. And they say, what are you doing? I'm you know, basically between gigs, just got uh, back from Bermuda. Uh, you got anything? And they said, no, nah, nothing here. Two weeks later, I get a phone call. And it's Dan. He goes, can you write? And I went, who can't write? <laughs> yeah. You know, so that, you know, so I kind of moved from, and and, and, and and I got a job as the national news editor. And so for four years, like I said, uh, I sat back, I listened, and I learned uh, about the music industry and how the music industry runs. Not necessarily... Because the bands will tell you what's coming from the heart, if you will, um, how the music is made, where they get inspiration from. But then there's a huge industry behind that, and, and it's a very competitive industry. And these days, uh, I run in the investment circles, and uh, one of the things I learned 
in the music industry is you need product flow. Uh, if you're going to be a label, you need a release after release after release. Uh, you can't just sit back on your laurels and expect that one album to go through the roof. Uh, nobody does. Uh, so even today, even in the investment world and putting people together, uh, in this case, entrepreneurs with financiers, uh, it's the exact same scenario. You've got young guys with great ideas who don't know how to take it to the next level. Uh, and that's a lot of what the music industry is all about. And that's what I learned. Mm -hmm. So you know, the whole objective, if you will, was not to sit back and just say, well, I've done everything I possibly do. No, I'll tell you, you know, when I did learn um, from all the various people who I've learned, you know, there's certain key messages you learn along the way. And one is that, you know, no one's really going to help you out. You've got to help yourself out. Um, and so I play no instrument. Uh, I couldn't tell you the difference between an A or a G. You know, I'm not a musician. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have had great people when I was in the music industry who could tell the difference between. Uh, and what I what I would told, told, see, I would make my decisions with respect to A&R from the heart. Uh, if the songs were good, if they're well-written song, that's one thing. But if they were sung well and if they're performed well and they could, if, if they could be really inspiring and they could really make your heart jump out, that those are the guys for you. And there was a connection that you, you knew you felt. Uh, and that has kind of stayed with me even to this very day. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember way, way, way back in university days, uh, my very first uh, business and economics teacher is telling me about uh, an interview. He goes, listen, if you don't like the guy who's interviewing you, you're not going to like the company. Uh, so, you know, we kind of went through that with an awful lot of bands. Uh, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of bands came to us who didn't even know who we were. They just wanted to get signed to a label. Uh, so they might not have liked me or they might not have liked who they got uh, uh, placed in front of uh, the label. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was a lot about the personalities involved. And the more importantly, when it came down to being signed, it was about the messages that were being written. Mm -hmm. and and how they were being delivered totally and, yeah and then that's that's where i think we made a difference and that's where i think we got recognized around the world too. a lot of people don't realize that but uh and i don't brag about it but at the end of the day uh being distributed in 23 territories around the world uh you know so there's an awful lot of people out there who knew about raw energy and certainly those guys down at uh, uh time bomb um you know um yeah. tony hawk and the boys they were great uh, you could pick up the phone and have a chat with him. Uh, even when we met uh, Brett from uh, Bad Religion, he was great. Yeah, you, know, you could talk to him all day long um, because you had something in common. And they, they knew, as we know, it's not about the music. It's about this machine that stands behind the music. And you all have to believe in the same thing. You want the same thing. You want change. You want to make an impact. You want to be relevant. Mm -hmm. And, and, that, and that, that comes from my heart. And I, I stay by those words, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to make a change. I've tried to make an impact, uh, not just with the label, but with what I'm doing nowadays, whether it's helping young entrepreneurs or, as I said earlier, going around the world for five years trying to sell solar panels to mm -hmm. uh, governments uh, in developing nations. I, you know, a few things resonate there. One thing is that personality to personality is always important to people like you and also like me, the people that I've always gravitated to or always been people that I have a good connection to. They're not somebody who can offer me something. They're not something who I can offer them something. It's always just personality to personality first and always that. 
then you do business too with each other. You know what I mean? Like it's always that important bond that you have or share in business. And uh, I think that's what I'm taking from that is that you meet the people, you like their message, you like what they have to offer. Let's make a record. It's not like your music is current. It's hot. It's the new thing. It's what I think is going to take us into our new big homes and bigger tax brackets. I don't, it's never been that for you and me, you know, and that's an important message that needs to get driven home a lot, especially with 90s punk rock, because 90s punk rock was a big commodity. It was the the thing, you know, and yet there was still that underlying tone of like, we still need to make change. We still need to change things. You know, we still need, although Green Day is selling 50,000 records a week, it's still important that punk rock remains to be punk rock, you know, you know, so that's... That's it's an important message that you know when you say keep your friends close and you resonate and everything and everything just sort of works itself out and that's the business right and 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 the reality of it is is as you know there's only so much time in the day there's only so much room on a label yeah. uh, so ultimately you do have to say no more often than you say yes mm-hmm. and so those are the types of business decisions that really get overlooked in the music industry there's a lot of talent out there and just because you've got talent and just because someone says no doesn't mean that you stop pounding on doors, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure uh, when I went in, when I went down to California a couple of years ago, I happened to bump into Chris Murray, uh, who was playing a local bar down on uh, State Street in Santa Barbara, and I literally bumped into him uh, with one of those, "What are you doing here? What are you doing here?" <laughs> yeah, and, and we still had that same camaraderie, that same you know, you, you, you're friends for life, even though I hadn't seen him in probably ten or fifteen years. So it's kind of neat uh, that I, I, I'm pretty sure I could bump into any one of those guys in, in, or gals in the bands and, and to this day and still have a, a beer or a coffee or lunch or chit chat or, or meet their kids and talk about, you know, their families now, what they're doing now. And I'll bet not many of them have really changed uh, because I'm pretty sure they're still the same people deep down. Uh, they had a lot of fun uh, and it was to some extent a business, um, but not we Ron wasn't a business it wasn't a business to be in the business of making music per se uh we wanted the the music uh to resonate uh like a, like the old what's it the ripples in the pond um you know two people tell two people four people tell eight people eight people tell 16 people and on it goes mm-hmm. um, uh, but no one's gonna like i learned when i was a, when i was a teenager you know just because i like the demix or the diodes or teenage head or battered wives uh, not all my friends did, that's for sure. Uh, you know, so not that I was alone or anything, but when you went downtown and you, you hit those clubs and those weirdos from all over the place, freaks, just like you. And uh, back then there were no logos. There were no, I mean, it was jean jackets and, uh, you know, there was, there was no hairstyles that defined a crowd per se. Um, funnily enough, though, I mean, as the years went on, uh, when I was at the magazine in the 80s, I got to meet Chris Blackwell. And, uh, you know, he was the one who gave me the guidance I needed to help shape uh, the label. Uh, not the most, uh, but just in terms of that, that real solid advice with respect to um, you know, expanding the borders of musicians by enabling them to listen to other musicians that they're going to admire and respect. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that many people really grasp. But to your point about connections, it's really, really important uh that the bands don't just stay in their basements and listen to themselves play 
uh, but get out and experience other kinds of musics as well. And yeah. they do. And I'm not saying they don't, but uh, it's really important that we as a label help push them along, uh, prod them, uh, poke them, annoy them, uh, frustrate them. Yep. Uh, just, just get them to listen, not just to us as business people, uh, but to get to listen to their, their fellow bandmates who've experienced other things as well, not only on the road, but in life. Uh, you know, and, and listen to uh, the people who are a little bit older, a little bit wiser, been around the block, and try to learn a few things and don't be so condescending to think that you know it all. Yeah. Do you think uh, a raw energy in today's um, environment would succeed or, or fail? Do you think it would be better because of what we have to offer, or what, what's offered with technology, or do you think it would die in the water? Uh, realistically, this this is this is how it is today. Um, all young people need to know what to talk about uh, in order to get laid. Um, you know, young guys might know something about cars, might know something about sports, but young girls—I hate to say it because I'm going to sound sexist—but they don't. And there's, that's the interesting thing about music. There's an interesting commonality there. Hey, I saw you last night at the No Effect show, you know, and and there's that instant bond, if you will, between male and female, or in these days, female and female, male and male. Sure. But at the end, at the end of the day, there's that commonality. Hey, I saw you at the show last night, and back in my day, it would be at the be at the local record store, Star Records. You'd be flipping through uh, the records, and then and you'd walk this girl, and you go, Hey, you were at that show last, night. and you came out of your mouth like you can't believe you said it. Uh, but there it was, you know, and you'd have no other reason in the world to talk to her if it weren't for music. So anyway, these days in the digital universe, if it will, uh, then there's no one who's telling these young people what is cool. They've kind of got to discover it themselves. So a lot of young guys like my, my two young sons, uh, you know, they have their own YouTube experts that they listen to and respect and they go to school and they're able to chat with their male friends. But they're going to, in a couple of years, they're going to realize that there's this meld uh, in, a, in that commonality is going to be found in music, I guarantee you. Uh, they're going to they're gonna need to know, uh, and they need to feel uh, a concert experience, and whether that's a small show or a large show. And then they're going to realize, hey, it's not going to be movies. Uh, hey, do you want to go? Because that can get expensive very quickly. Yeah. It has to be a lifestyle. It has to be a cultural thing. It has to be something that you believe in and stand for. And I think that's where punk, for example, and ska, and to some degree the metal bands tend to galvanize that spirit, uh, whereas you can't find that in pop music, if you know, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, uh, definitely. It seems like pop music, everybody's looking at the stage. They're not looking at the environment around them. They're looking at that spectacle that's being brought before them. Where if you're at a Lee's Palace show or if you're at any, even, even the whatever, any concert hall show or anything, you're in this happening of people and you're in this bunch of people and you're looking around because the band is, it's part of the scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I made a very conscious decision in the late 80s that I would never go to another show that I could not sweat at. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I found myself at the magazine uh, going to these great stadium shows, going backstage, having drinks, etc. And and having lost it somewhere along the way. And and that's, that was one of the major motivations in launching Raw Energy, uh, was to bring it back, uh, make sweat happen again. 
<laughs> and and get people to connect on that very physical level on the dance floor if you will uh originally the skank you know uh, skanking around the dance floor a lot of people bumping into each other but no fights ever brought uh, broke out I, I don't i can't even actually remember a fight breaking out at a punk rock show to be done uh, i'm trying to think oh i remember I, I remember one but it was gross and it was on the west coast there was one rocker guy he was fucking with all the other punkers, and they wrapped him around a pole and kicked the shit out of him. It was disturbing. And that was the first Kingpin tour, first Trigger Happy tour. That was the weirdest. That was our first show we saw when we got out of a van after driving all the way across North America. We saw this guy get the shit kicked out of him. And it was that sound of boot on face. It was like, uh, it was the worst. It was the worst. But yeah, I know what you're saying, though. I, when it was, you're right. But yeah, there was, um, there was never really too many, like, altercations in punk rock that I remember. I've played a lot of shows. I've worked a lot of shows. Mostly it's between the bouncers and the and the crowd. Well, I, I think for, for a very simple reason. You get your yayas out down on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's that real interesting uh, level of respect, if you will. Um, big or small, you're all there for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't like calling these things circle pits and mosh pits or that kind of... I don't like putting... But, you know, it's really fun to be involved. I mean, it's too bad that stage diving kind of lost its... Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. But, I mean, there's a lot of fun that was had at those early shows. Um, you know, and a lot of... You're right. A lot of the bouncers tended to take out their aggression on younger, smaller, potentially drunker people. Uh, but I'm talking about the the, uh, the core group, if you will, the the, the fans of the bands. Uh, they were way into the music. They were way into the experience. They were way into the passion that was being generated off that stage for them on their behalf. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah and that's something that, so could it, could it be launched today? Yes. Um, if like seriously, it would really require um, a, a decent label would actually require, you know what it would require? It'd be more like, I hate to say it, but more like Marvel or DC, um, you know, because, and more in the way that uh, WWE or now WWF, you'd have, to, you'd have to treat the bands as characters, if you will. And from there, Spawn. No, no, you just cut out. You there? Yeah, you just cut out. Spawn, go from there. Sorry, so yeah. I'm just saying that you have to then, once you develop the character or sign the band, and the band know who they are, they know what their message is, they know who they're playing to, then uh, can come the line of comic books, then can come the line of TV shows, the line of movies, if you will, about the band, but more importantly about their message or their story. Mm -hmm. Because you'll probably, you'll probably find an undercurrent or a theme uh, that all bands have, and it's unique and it's distinct. And it's often uh, portrayed by the lead singer. The lead singer is the one that makes, I mean, I hate to say it, but now I'm not going to say anyone can play guitar because I can't play guitar. Uh, but every band has a great guitar player. Uh, every band has a great bass player. Every band has a great, well, every band has many drummers. Uh, but it's always the lead singer that makes the difference. Yeah. Uh, it's that sound. That's the sound. Um, yeah, that's what you, that's what, can help you distinguish so from my perspective just answering that question off the top of my head i would say realistically 
it's about those grant of rights I was talking about earlier. So if you're to start a label today, the musicians themselves, the bands themselves, would have to consider them part of a much bigger empire. Uh, so, and quite frankly, it's not that hard to do because many of the bands have great diverse interests. Many are great artists themselves. Many are great filmmakers. Many are great painters. So it wouldn't be that hard to put all that creativity together uh, so long as it's focused and dynamic and, and is backed by a machine that can make money because you can't do it for free forever. Uh, you need to you need to feed your kids. I learned that in South America. At the end of the day, you need to feed your kids. Yeah. Uh, you know. Well, I mean, so, so that. Go ahead. Go ahead. That, that's what I. That's what I would suggest. These is not happening at the major label level. Uh, they're quite content to sign bands, produce music, and offer up the soundtracks, if you will, to movies. Uh, but very few people have the vision, if you will, to take it to the next level and begin to explore those branded rights that I just mentioned and, and to develop a line of entertainment or a brand of entertainment uh, based on either the stories that the bands have to tell themselves or based on the bands. Because you, 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 there's every single, you, you could make a movie of every single band that ever was. You really could, yeah. because the, the stories are incredible. Uh, every, there's not one great, yeah, sorry, there's, every band has a great story to tell you. And, uh, you know, and, and they're either funny or sad or both, uh, or exciting, poignant. Uh, and a lot of it, too, when you get down to the nuts and bolts of punk and ska, for example, um, it's, it's socially and politically relevant. Um, so when you combine those elements uh, of excitement in a brand uh, with real life, if you will, uh, I think you've got something. Mm -hmm. And so if I if I were uh, putting my betting money on a label today, it would have to be one that has the vision to take the, the brand to the next level, not just contain itself within the music industry. Uh, because, you, because if you think about the amount of money that's required to record albums and or the necessary video product and or uh, to launch tours and promote those tours and sell those tickets to those shows uh, you'd better think of other revenue streams to accompany so you may as well shoot the documentary while you're on the road you sell those rights out uh, there's 300 broadcasters in the states and cable broadcasters that are looking for content mm -hmm. so it's not that hard to put two and two together but are labels doing it no no main Mainly labels look at the music. Can we? Oh, that's a great song. That's going to go to number one. Uh, I can feel it. Uh, well, that's the wrong approach. Um, and and I found out uh, from the bands themselves back in the eighties uh, there was more about luck and timing than anything else. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. There's there's no amount of money that was going to take you to the top. Um, and, and believe me, a lot of a lot of labels and people did spend a lot of money to try and take their band to the top. Uh, and uh, only to find out that uh, the next great band had just launched and <laughs> mm -hmm. and they were screaming through the charts. So now you, you can't do, you can't plan it. Uh, you can write the, and I have you can write the greatest business plan ever. Uh, but you no matter how much money you ask for. I remember uh, Chris Black and I we met uh, the guys from Virgin, and uh, we had a, a finance guy behind us and. Uh, he he told us how much money we were to ask for, 
And roughly speaking, if you say to uh, the next guy up the chain, I want to sign 10 bands, I'm looking for 100 grand a pop, well, you're looking for a million bucks, that type of thing. In this case, I would say we were looking for approximately 10, I think it was $12 million. And the guy from Virgin said to us quite bluntly, he said, if I gave you $12 million today, right now, what would you do with it? Like, could you actually spend $12 million today? And the answer, point blank, was no. But we were just being honest. Uh, but we were saying if we were to grow the label, that's the kind of money that we would need. So anyway, he didn't take us seriously because we couldn't. Not that we couldn't spend the money. Couldn't fathom. That, couldn't fathom no, we that. Could, well, we could. Well, what we were doing is we were doing the multiplication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how many bands can you sign and promote properly yeah. and develop and develop the right amount of revenue streams to accompany their growth to enable you to successfully record album two, album three? Because the one thing I learned, um, albums two and three pretty well pay for album four, which is the one that you now know what you're doing. And mm-hmm. then you take a look at all the great bands, the truly great bands. When I say great, I mean the bands who have cut through it all and finally succeeded. And in whatever genre you're talking about, uh, but it's it's you take a look at them all, and I guarantee you, it's not. Yes, several have had great debut albums, several have had great live albums, but take a look at their discography, and it's going to be that third and fourth albums that are critical. Uh, fifth, they coast because they're probably in a five-year deal, and uh, six and seven, you're talking about old guys, and their relevancy pretty well is faded. Um, so. A lot of really smart labels know that, and they count on that, and they can bank on that. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is uh, if I was to do it again, uh, what I would incorporate is all these other creative elements uh, that are required. And wh- whether it's the, the, the these days the graphic novels, uh, you know, which lead to uh, the TV shows and the miniseries yeah. and the movies. Uh, bands, I think, would be creative enough to drive those kinds of products uh, through the market, and not just here in Canada. I'm certainly not just talking about the Canadian market. I'm talking on a global level. So, and, and the one thing I can do is multiply the numbers even greater uh, when you're talking about advertising. I mean, the millions of dollars. I mean, take a look at any grade A movie that comes out, and you take a look at the millions of dollars that's required to produce the movie, but the many more millions of dollars that are required to promote it yeah and that and that's exactly so i take off a zero and that's what the music industry is doing but <laughs> it's totally true you, you know but that's that's the that is, that is the reality these days so if i were to if you're talking about an independent you know, yeah and remember too i mean that's one of the things that we haven't talked about simon is the reality of independent versus uh, corporate giant i mean that's the one thing i never consider truly is here was an independent label competing not just for chart space but for retail space rack space as they call it uh and not just radio airplay because i knew i wasn't gonna get, gonna get top 40 airplay uh, but we were ballsy enough to get at least the interview on the local rock station wherever the band was uh, we certainly uh, channeled our energies towards the campus market and saw a lot of opportunity there that was unexploited yeah. So you know, yeah, I have you have to take take it all with a grain of salt on one hand because you're you're not that corporate giant, but you can certainly begin to uh, take away their market share and really annoy them, and that's where we had fun uh, was annoying the major labels. I mean, they were they were 
you know, they, they had well-paying jobs. Uh, they took their time to develop artists and, and get these well-crafted pieces of product in the market to see them fail. And and when we didn't, uh, you know, we took the time uh, to explain to our. I mean, Al, I'll tell you this: we took the time to explain to artists that it wasn't just about their art. Uh, you know, it was our reputation that was on the line. We crafted this label, and this this label is now a brand, and it was a recognized brand, and it was a trusted brand. It was something that the kids expected good quality product to be released from, and we were releasing great music, and we were putting out great product. Uh, and we learned that from uh, when we first signed to A&M Records. Uh, a young lady by the name of Debbie Brennan, when I brought in the King Apparatus album, she said to me, this is great, I heard it's a great album, but what's next? Uh, 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 yeah. You know, and it took us a while to figure out that word product flow. Yeah. Um, yeah and that's, and that's, what, that's what a big corporation needs. Yeah. Well, uh, because, well, rumor has it that you used King Apparatus to get all the bands signed to A&M. That's the rumor. Is that true? Uh, no, we had uh, what's called a P&D deal yeah. uh, with A&M. Uh, so we were in complete control of our own fate and destiny. Hmm. Uh, the bands, first and foremost, were signed to us. Uh, King Apparatus, if you remember, um, you know, this is how it goes. We signed King Apparatus, John and I. Uh, we took them to Grant Avenue Studios. Uh, Bobby Wiseman played... Uh, uh, the Hammond uh, B3 organ, the, the Leslie amplifier, uh, sounded great. Uh, we then, uh, it was made for TV, it went through the, to the top of the charts on CFMY, won that contest. We beat out the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, and, and we won a, uh, old, a really old school computer. We traded that old school computer for recording time down at Sounds Interchange, and we recorded their debut album. Uh, and, and and we were all working at the Toad in the Hole, basically, down on King Street near Spadina, a uh, little English pub. I was running the label out of the basement. And basically, uh, one of my customers, one of my, my guys who came into the bar, owned a uh, cassette manufacturing facility, Akidub, down on uh, Bathurst. And Freddie uh, is his name, and we ordered 8,000 cassettes, King Apparatus cassettes, paid for them ourselves, ourselves, and the band didn't, we did. Uh, and we gave them to the band to go out on the road and sell, and they did. Uh, and then ultimately we produced their first CD. I think we manufactured a thousand copies, uh, and it began to sell through as well. Because you have to remember the transition in technologies. Oh yeah. Going from, going from analog to digital, and so we uh, that was eighty nine to ninety two, all completely done independently, all done all those three years done to develop King Apparatus, and we took them from. Uh, a very unknown, one-in-a-million type of uh, band uh, to a very well-known, well-respected ska band, uh, who, by the way, uh, uh, were very good musicians, I must say. Uh, and Chris was an excellent songwriter and uh, a pretty good singer. So the reality of it was, was it took us three years to develop that band and get them to the point where A&M said, and because of my relationship with the senior executives at A&M, mm -hmm. uh, where they took an interest and said, you know, what's it going to take for, for Raw Energy to sign that P&D deal with us? Uh, well, we really need help getting this album. It's, it's, it's getting too big for us to handle. Mm -hmm. And can you take on that, the pressing and the distribution of it? And they said, yes. Uh, and that's when I learned the word product flow. So um, 
it was it, it would be unfair to say that uh, we then signed bands to a and m because that was not true uh, ask random killing i mean uh, you know they 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 hated the fact well, but they enjoyed the fact and kind of uh, yeah, I mean they're they're one of the few punk bands that got distributed on a major label, uh, and we had we signed five yeah five we put out five of their albums um, uh, through A and M, so that's pretty good uh, for bands like Band and Killing who who normally I don't think would have been given that shot, uh, and they were given that shot on on a first Canadian level and then a global level because Blackmark out of Germany loved them as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, Random Killing had a really good uh, shot, uh, and after, as they say, after it. So there's your Scott band, there's your punk band, uh, and then, um, like I said, we really went after very unique, diverse. Uh, oh, around that time frame, uh, Amy Hershenhorn put out uh, uh, the very first compilation called On the Road. Oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bands like, uh, you name it, Dinner's Ruin, Change of Heart, a lot of East Coast band. Uh, Eric's Trip was on it. Yeah. Um, Groovy Religion. There's a lot of really good, good, young, unheard of bands uh, that were alt-rock now, is what you might call them. Uh, but for us, they were, they were punk bands. They were independent bands doing their own thing, and they sounded great. And that was a great album, and uh, it still sounds great today, quite frankly. Uh, and when I was on the road with Random Killing, uh, a very famous uh, road trip with Random Killing, I've got to say. Um, but while we were on the road, we decided to put out another compilation featuring punk bands. And this one was called Dead on the Road. And, uh, and, and, and uh, the subtitle was Songs Without Keyboards. Um, and it was great, too. I mean, it garnered us a lot of attention. Uh, these compilations were widely discussed among the media, I would say. Uh, not widely bought, I mean, widely talked about, uh, probably duplicated an awful lot by the kids out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it went kind of over a over head, if you will, in terms of uh, the reach that we had across the country, uh, not just through the campus circuit, but through the... The, the true alternative market that was developing in the early nineties. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's what we hit. We, we, we hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And, and we put out six compilations, I think, mm -hmm. which ended up by the way, if you remember, we did, uh, we did a great uh, compilation with shock records out of Australia called 20 band comp, uh, 10 of our bands and 10 of their bands, uh, their big band being toe to toe out of Sydney. They were, they were ferocious uh, punk rock label, and uh, and they considered us equally as ferocious, and uh, we had a, that was a great, absolutely fantastic compilation too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the the compilations um, served as well because we couldn't sign every single band to Raw Energy, and we couldn't sign every single band through Raw Energy to A and M, but we could put out compilations and at least garner these bands exposure, mm -hmm. and uh, they were grateful for that exposure. A lot of those bands. We're able to take that exposure and either jump onto other independent labels that were morphing and moving upwards, um, Sonic Onion being one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and a couple of East Coast labels as well. Uh, On Guard out of Montreal was doing really well. Paul Gott's a good friend of mine. Yeah. You know, so he was doing well with his kinds of, you know, it, uh, what's that band out of Winnipeg that's doing really well these days? Uh, Prop uh, Yeah. 
So back in the back in the day, uh, you know, you were these, you know, I'm going to say small bands who, you, know, you, you so you can't sign them all. Is all I'm saying, <laughs> uh, but but you kind of hoped that there were guys in those cities that would do the same things that you were doing yeah. in Toronto. But G7, because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because realistically, it's not that nobody likes Toronto. It's that there's never been a Toronto sound. There's there's never been a bunch, a plethora of record labels that have exploded out of Toronto all at one time. Um, we were kind of hoping that other labels would grab other kinds of musics uh, at that time. Our very last compilation was called uh, On the Road to Amsterdam, actually, and it featured 20 of Toronto's reggae bands. And mm. uh, it was actually the last album I put out. <laughs> so I kind, of, I kind of went full circle from King Apparatus, being a ska band, to uh, a, a compilation of 20 reggae bands. And that was the end of the first part. Grand Voice, one of two episodes. Next week, don't forget to tune in for episode two of that. Part two, I guess, is what we call it in the biz. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you for Graham for doing the show. Don't forget to go to audibletrial.com slash to get a book and get read to. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at SimonHead666. Don't forget to shop on Amazon by going to appalogue.ca slash Amazon or appalogue.ca slash US Amazon. If you're from the United States or from Canada, it rarely does help. So tune in next week, part two, Grand Boys, now we're episode 139, and I'll see you next week. Bye. do a secret word at the end of a podcast whatever what secret word do you want this to be crab crab get the discography download crab